The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. We continue this morning in our three part series on parables, which we began last week looking at the parable of the soils in Matthew 13. Excuse me, we uh, are going to progress a little bit in Matthew 13 and pick up a second parable in the same chapter, down beginning in verse 24 and following. If you have your Bibles with you, you can follow along with me. If you don't, there are some Bibles under the chairs in front of you. You're more than welcome to pick one of those up and use them. <clears throat> Matthew 13, beginning in verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the weed along with them. Let both grow until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Skipping down to verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into his house or into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they'll gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. And throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Father, as we approach this text this morning, words that Come off of the lips of your son to a crowd of people many, many years ago. And yet they're words that you've meant for us today. May we be those who have ears to hear. Help us to hear it. What it is that you would have to say to us. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. I introduced the whole issue of parables to you last week in looking at the parable of the soils that we began uh, sort of our our little short journey in parables with. And we looked at 
And how in Matthew 13, Jesus shifts his attention and shifts his way of communication to the crowds that have been following him for quite some time. And he shifts from, from giving full explanations about things to talking in parables. And he tells us that he does this for a particular purpose. He begins to speak to them in parables for two reasons, both to conceal and to reveal. For those who have already rejected the message that's been given to them, for those who did not have hearts that were receptive and truly eager to understand what Christ was talking about and who he really was, the parables were a judgment. They were a way of speaking in such a way that they would have no idea what he was speaking about. They would understand the story, but they would not understand the significance of the story. But they're intended to reveal also. To those who approached him with a sincere heart, to those who came truly wanting to know what he was talking about and who he truly was, then the parables were open to them. That is to say, they understood both the surface story and their eyes were open to understand the spiritual significance underneath the story and how that applied to their lives. And so it was a unique way of communicating. It was a unique way of taking stories that were fictional stories, but stories that involved real people and real scenarios But they were never just stories in and of themselves. They were stories intended to make a very clear spiritual point, or perhaps two points. And so Jesus tells the the crowd, and he tells the disciples, the knowledge of the secrets has been given to you, but it hasn't been given to them, that is, to the crowds in general. And he says the reason is because seeing they don't see, and though hearing They do not hear or understand. The idea is that they've plugged their ears and they've covered their eyes because they don't want to see the reality of who he is. They're following and they're listening, but they're following and listening for other reasons, not out of a sincere heart and not out of a genuine pursuit to know the truth. And so Jesus says it's not revealed to them. They don't understand it. And again, I just remind you that there is a a simple message underneath that, that when you are exposed to the truth of Christ, when you're exposed to the truth of the gospel over and over again, and you continually give it the stiff arm and push it away, there comes a point where what you do understand, even that begins to fade away. And perhaps even a point at which you become blinded altogether to the message. That was the case with these crowds, and that's why Jesus started teaching in this way. And so he tells us that, and he begins this whole sort of series of teachings that are laid out via parable. And we saw the first one at the beginning of Matthew 13, the parable of the soils, or the parable of the sower, however you want to call it, last week. And this week we look at the next one, really right on the heels of that, which is in fact, in in essence, very similar to the first. There are a lot of similarities between the parable we studied last week and the parable Of this week, at least in the story itself, both of the parables talk about a sower, right? Both of them involve seed. Both of them involve a field. Both of them involve a crop that yields fruit. In both parables, there's an evil one who's active. So it's the same sort of a context, and it's the same sort of an agricultural story, but it makes a completely different point. The parable of the soils that we saw last week was intended to teach the disciples, help them understand why people were reacting to Christ the way they were reacting. They needed to understand why it was that that when Christ taught and when he did miracles, why it was that people were reacting in the various ways that they were. In, In their minds, they couldn't comprehend how the Messiah could come and speak the truth and do miracles, and everybody didn't just believe. 
That wasn't what was happening. They saw some people rejecting outright, and they saw some people that seemed to receive it for a moment, and then the next thing you know, they disappear and they're gone. They, seemed, they, they, they noticed people who, who were genuinely enthusiastic about the message and, and followed along with their whole heart only to have trouble or persecution come, and they fall away, and they couldn't make any sense of all that. So Jesus told the parable of the sower to help them understand the way men react to the gospel. He tells this parable, the parable of the weeds and the wheat, to help them understand the nature of the kingdom in general. The first one explains the reactions of men to the gospel. The second one explains the nature of the kingdom, what his kingdom is like. It explains why there's evil that remains in the world even though the Messiah has come. Even though the, the promised one has arrived and has lived and has taught and has died and has been resurrected now at our point of view from history, we still live in a world filled with evil, where at times it seems like the evil dominates. At times it even seems like his people are being diminished and perhaps even defeated. The signs of that were already evident at the time in which Jesus spoke this, and surely those kinds of questions were already on the minds of the disciples, so they needed to understand why it is that evil remains in the world, even though Christ has come. They also needed to understand what is eventually going to happen when Christ returns. And so this story is set up to explain those two things. And it is an interesting story. It's a fascinating story. Again, we're not farmers, right? Most of us. Do we have farmers in the room? I'm looking at you. I'm not guessing there's any farmers. But maybe there are. Maybe some of you grew up on a farm or something along those lines. And you understand these things. But we're, we're typically suburban people, right? We don't. Maybe you, you grow something in your backyard, you know, some organic fruit or something. But it's not the same as having a field, right, that you're sowing wheat in and harvesting. But to the people who originally heard this story, this was common. This was every day. This is what people did. It's what they saw. It was just life. For us, it requires a little bit of explanation. So we'll do that. Jesus tells the story, and we read it just a moment ago, and he begins it by saying the kingdom of heaven is like... He wants them to understand the nature of his kingdom. What is the nature of his kingdom and how does that relate to what they're experiencing in the world around them and what they're seeing around? And so when he says the kingdom of heaven here, he's not talking about the future kingdom of heaven like, you know, in eternity future when all the accounts are settled and we live with Christ forever. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven right now, present Present in the days of the apostles in which he was teaching this and present in our day. It describes for us the nature of the kingdom of God between when Christ first came and when he is going to come back. What is the nature of his kingdom in between those two moments of history? This is a period of time, if you were going just off of the Old Testament, like the apostles would have been, you would have had no clear concept of what this time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ was going to be like. Now, in retrospect, we can see it because the prophets foretold it in various ways. But it was, it was in the New Testament, Paul calls it a mystery hidden until the present time. It was something that was foggy and not clear, this time between the first and second coming of Christ. It would have been the Old Testament mindset, and it would have been the apostles' mindset, that when Messiah comes, he's going to make all things right then. That he's going to set up his kingdom, he's going to deal with evil in the world, and his kingdom is going to rise right then and there. And the rule of Christ is going to be established on earth, and evil and sin is going to be done away with. 
That would have been their expectation. So you can understand why when Jesus comes along and does his ministry and they see what appears to be the opposite happening, they're confused. And so Jesus tells them this story to help them understand what this period of time is like, this kingdom of heaven and the present. And he does it by talking about a field. And he does it by talking about a sower. And he does it by talking about weeds. You get the imagery, right? There's a field. It's empty. And the sower goes through like a sower would every year. And he plants his seed in this empty field and gets the soil that's all prepared. And he puts the seed out and gets everything just right so that the the wheat can grow and the harvest can be brought in. And they can harvest the weed and go sell it at market. And that becomes sort of the funding source for their life and for everybody associated with the enterprise altogether. But there's a problem with this field. The harvest isn't pure. He talks to us about some weeds. Some, sometimes you hear these weeds called tares. In the ESV, they call it weeds. And maybe the old King James, I think they, they would translate it tares. But the issue here is it's a, it's a kind of a, of, of a weed, if you will. That's a, a really practical word for it. I understand weeds. I can grow them better than anything in the world. You want me to try to grow something that you intend to grow that looks pretty? Never a chance in the world. But weeds, I got that. But this kind of weed is a particular kind of weed that grew in that particular part of the world in that particular time of the year called the darnel or the bearded darnel. It was a really obnoxious weed that, that went sort of crazy and it grew all over the place and it very, very closely resembled wheat. Very closely resembled. You can see between the two pictures, if you kind of go back and forth, Ben, you can see this is very, very similar looking in what it appears. In fact, you wouldn't even be able to tell any sort of a difference between the two until the plants are fully matured and you can see some, some, someone who's trained in these things who sows and reaps for a, a living would be able to identify them. But it wouldn't be until near the end before you could tell the difference. And this particular weed is particularly nasty, not because it's just just alone because it's a nuisance, that it is, and not just because it messes up the harvest, that it does, not just because it steals nutrients and sunlight and water and all of those things from the actual things that you're trying to grow, but this particular weed grows a particular kind of a fungus that's poisonous. If you eat it, it will make you terribly sick. So it's a nasty weed. It's a nuisance and literally destructive on many fronts. And in the story, the sower sells, he doesn't sell, he sows his seed. And and, uh, then it tells us an enemy came in the night and went away. So you get the picture. The sower does all of his work. All of the people are working in the field. They do their hard work. They labor for the day and they're worn out at the end of the day. They go in at dark and they, they rest for the evening, totally unsuspecting. When darkness falls, evil starts to reign. Somebody comes in. Someone with nefarious intentions comes in. And what does he do? In the darkness of night, he goes all throughout the field and he sows these these weeds, these bearded darnel, these poisonous weeds in the middle of this sower's field. In the story, Jesus says he, he, he sows them among the wheat. The word among translated there, it means all throughout, literally all throughout the entire field. This enemy sows this nasty weed. 
and nobody knows. Nobody sees them. Nobody hears them. Nobody has a clue. Before the darkness lifts, he leaves. And he leaves no evidence behind that he's been there. And so work in the field continues to go on. And the farmer continues to farm. And the sower continues to cultivate his crop, as do the workers in the field who work for him and with him. It's not until the wheat sprouted and formed heads, Jesus tells us, that the problem becomes evident. The weed begins to form the heads, and you saw the heads in those pictures, right? And all of a sudden, they begin to look at the field and begin to say, something's not right. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. I can imagine one of the workers looking out and maybe walking through the field and, and saying, wait a minute, something isn't right here. And he starts to see these weeds, right? And then he begins to move over to another section of the field and he begins to look there and he says, what do you know? There's, there's weeds over here too. And any farmer would have expected some weeds in the field. You can't eliminate them all. But this isn't just some weeds in the field. Everywhere they go, all throughout the crop, there's weeds. Up until this point, the whole crop has looked just the same. And the servants are absolutely shocked when they realize that the whole field is filled with these poisonous weeds. Poisonous weeds. Can you imagine? They've been working this field forever. They've been working it, and they're counting on this for their livelihood. They've now realized all of a sudden that the whole thing is just, it's just absolutely all throughout got these weeds. Their, their harvest is contaminated. The, the hard work uh, that they put into this field and that they're going to continue to have to put in until the harvest is now going to not be anywhere near as profitable as it would have been previously because they've got this problem with weeds. And, and they're also thinking in terms of the difficulty that lies ahead now of having to harvest the crop and trying to salvage what's good in the midst of all the garbage weed. And they're astounded. They realize this isn't just accidental. And so they go to the sower, the farmer, and they say to him, Sir, didn't you sow good, good seed in your field? Sir, do you, isn't it possible that you bought some bad seed? And that's a legit question, right? Maybe the seed was wrong. Maybe the farmer got duped. Farmer says, no, my, my seed was good. And he immediately knows an enemy has done this. He knows it's too many weeds. It's too many weeds to be a coincidence. An enemy has done this. It's an intentional, evil, cowardly act that has taken place, and he knows it. And so the, the harvesters or the, the workers say what I think probably any of us would say. Well, do you, what do, you, do you want us to go pull them all up? Do we go out to the fields and pull all these weeds up? Let's go ahead and just deal with the problem right now. And he says, no, no. You don't do that because you might pull up some good wheat along with the weeds. And we make our crop even worse than it already is. You see, to the farmer, it seemed to be more important to save the good wheat than to uproot the weeds for the moment. It wasn't worth the risk of damaging the good in order to uproot the bad. And so the farmer says there's another solution to this. Let them both grow until the harvest. Let them grow until it's time to harvest. He tells them, be patient. Wait. Wait until the right time. 
When it's time for the harvest, we'll deal with it then. There are special harvesters that are going to be called in who are specialists at separating the weeds from the wheat. And at that time, we'll do the deed. We'll get the weeds up, we'll bundle them, and we'll toss them in the furnace and burn them, which is where the weeds belong. And then we'll harvest the good stuff, and we'll put it in my barn. And that's the end of the parable. Now, if you're one of those who has ears to hear, you know that there's more to the story than a sower in a field and an enemy and weeds and a furnace. If you don't have ears to hear, then you go, that's a nice agriculture story. What does it have to do with me? But you notice in verse 36, it says he left the crowd and he went to a house. And it's there that his disciples come and say, please explain to us what all that was about. And so he does. He tells them all these things in the story are symbols. They're all symbols of things that are true and real and spiritual. And so he begins to walk through the symbols to them, explaining one by one what they are. He says to them, look, here, here are the symbols. The sowers. There's two sowers in this story, right? Two sowers. There's a sower of good seed, and then there's a sower of weeds. He says the sower of good seed is the Son of Man. Him, the one who's telling the story. He uses the term Son of Man, which is a, a term he used to, uh, to describe himself all the time. It was, a, it was a, a well-known messianic title from the Old Testament. I was, okay, so we get that. You're the sower, and you're the one who's sowing the seed. Out into the field. Good. What about the other sower? The other sower, this enemy, he identifies as the devil. And I think you should note here that Satan is identified as a real being, not just some sort of a symbol. It seems clear that Jesus understands Satan to be real. Now, I understand that that's not particularly fashionable in our culture. That seems like fairies and ghosts and, and, and you know, Easter bunnies and such. But Jesus clearly understood Satan to be a real being. Not just some symbol of evil, not just some sort of symbol of darkness, but a real actual enemy who is a live actor in the world and a live actor in the lives of the people who live in the world. And he makes clear that he's not our friend, that he's our enemy. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Peter writes, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. What's being described here, or should I say who's being described here, is not some little guy in a red suit with a tail and a pitchfork. He's not the caricature that culture likes to play him out to be. He's far, far more dangerous than that. One commentator writes this. He says, what Satan does is mean, it's cruel, it's cowardly, it's sadistic. He waits until everybody's asleep and secretly and silently and surreptitiously sows his nefarious seed. This wicked work is true to human experience, of course. Because Satan is a kind of silent, secret, wicked worker in this world. Describes, in fact, the actual nature of Satan and his work in the world around us. 
He does not parade himself as a little red guy in a pony, uh, ponytail, pointy ears, and a pitchfork and such. He is a silent and deadly worker who does not advertise himself as who he is, who comes in the night under cover of darkness and does everything he can to conceal his evil work. The goal being that nobody understands and nobody believes and nobody cares until it's way too late. commentator by the name of McLaren says this. He says, the devil is God's ape. His work is a parody of Christ's. Where the good seed is sown, there is evil scattered thickest. False Christs and false apostles dog the true like their shadows. Every truth has its counterfeit. You see, that's the image of Satan here. He's the one who works in the darkness, who's perfectly content for nobody to believe in him. Who's perfectly content for nobody to think he's doing anything at all. He doesn't leave signs that he's doing his work in general, except for those who know what the telltale signs of his work are. He comes in the darkness. He parades himself as good when he's evil. And that really is the, the, the essential characteristic of his nature that comes out of this parable, that he is a master at making the good appear evil and making evil appear good. That's what he does in the field. He sows not just a random seed, but a seed that is an almost an exact counterfeit, that looks just like the real thing, that nobody would ever suspect early enough to do something about it before it can do its destruction. It's exactly the same kind of nature that we see of him in the Garden of Eden when he encounters Adam and he encounters Eve. And God has given them everything for their enjoyment. He's given them one sort of expectation, and that's not to eat of a particular tree. And what does this, this enemy do? He, he slithers alongside and he says, has God really said that? God says, everything is good. Here's this one thing that's forbidden. And along comes an enemy who says, has God really said that? Is that really what God means? Or do you think he's just trying to keep you under his thumb? Maybe he really doesn't intend for your good. Maybe the best thing for you to do is exactly what he's forbidden. Maybe it is that God knows that that's the best thing and he just doesn't want you to have it. You see, it's cowardly. It's trickery. It's deceptive. And at its heart, it's calling what is good evil and what is evil good. And that's been his game plan and his M.O. really as long as there's been humanity on earth. From Eve to a parable about a, a field to your life and mine. And so he's the other sower in the story. Well, there's not just that. There's seeds. What are the seeds? Jesus tells us about those. He says there's good seed. The good seed are the sons of the kingdom. That is believers. This is Christians. This is people who, who are planted by God, who grow up into the fruit that he's intended and belong to him. And be kept with him forever. But then there's the weeds. Who are these weeds? He says they're the sons of the evil one. The weeds, he says, are the sons of the one who planted them in the field in the darkness of night. They're, it's another way of describing unbelievers. Now, again, we have compassion for people who are lost. 
as rightly we ought to. And if, if anything this parable teaches us, it, it does teach us that, particularly in the last statement. But here Jesus makes no mistake about it. The weeds are those who are sons of the evil one. He, he labels them evil. Now, that's not particularly fashionable either in our culture to label anyone or anything evil. You do that these days, and it's how dare you? Who in the world are you to call somebody evil? You judgmental, hypocrite, bigoted person you. Right? Isn't that the response you get if you try to cut these things tight? You remember, if you're old enough, when George Bush was president, and in a particular State of the Union address, he labeled some some nations, at that time, Iran, uh, Iraq, and North Korea, as an axis of evil. And do you remember the, I mean, just the the chaos that, that people could not believe that a president would call any nation or anybody evil? Who in the world is he to say what's good and what's evil? Before him, Ronald Reagan had a similar response in, re, in, in regard to his labeling the Soviet Empire of his time an evil empire. And nothing has changed since those days. You, you go around starting to slice good and evil, and you'll immediately get that same kind of a response. But Jesus has no problem clearly slicing where the slicing goes. There's good and there's evil. There are sons of the kingdom and there are sons of the evil one. There's the only two kinds of, 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 of seeds in the field, if you will. There's no third kind. There's no fourth kind. Here, unbelievers, people who don't know Christ, are referred to as children of the evil one. In John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus has said this in a multitude of ways. Here's a couple of examples. In John 8, 44, he speaks directly to some of these weeds by saying this, You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he's a liar, and he's the father of lies. He says to people directly, you know what? You belong to your father. Who's your daddy? Your daddy's the devil. That's who. That's who he is. And you're carrying out his mission. And you're doing exactly what he intends for you to do. Whether consciously or subconsciously. That's who you are. And that's what you're doing. And that's one of the hard messages of this, of this parable. When we look out into the world around us, there are only two kinds of people. There are children of the kingdom and there are children of the evil one. There are those who belong to God because they've been reconciled to him through the blood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and by faith have repented of their sin and entrusted their lives to him, and they are the, the sons of the kingdom. And there are those who have not. And they are indeed children of the evil one, whether they know it or they don't. If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. There's never come a time in your life when you have consciously looked yourself in the mirror, admitted that you are a sinner who has lived your life in rebellion against your Creator, and has not in your heart turned and said, God, I no longer want to live for myself, but I want to live for you. And I believe that your Son Jesus died in my place, shed His blood to pay the penalty of, e of eternal death that I deserve for my sin. And I realize my only hope is that you would forgive me based on what he's done on the cross for me and receive me as your son and give me eternal life. 
If that's never been the reality of your life, if that's never happened for you, then you need to understand this morning you don't belong to Christ. You belong to an enemy. An enemy who will lie to you and tell you he's your friend right up until the time that you die and it's too late and you find out that your whole life's been a lie and that you've been deceived. In the meantime, you're on his team, you're wearing his uniform, you're doing his bidding whether you know it or you don't. That's the clear message, at least part of it from this story. And Jesus says the field is the world. The field is the world. So this is a a story that's intended to teach us something about the nature of the kingdom, but the nature of the kingdom as it exists in the world. Sometimes when you hear this parable taught, as I did when I was growing up, sort of in 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 a way that was sort of a manipulative, you'll hear it taught as though Jesus is talking about the church, that he's talking about weeds in the church, That's not what he's talking about primarily in this story. This is a story about the kingdom in the world. The field is the world, not the church. I remember very vividly an evangelist coming through at one point in my life in uh, teaching from this. He wasn't really teaching the parable. He was just using it as a springboard to um, sort of go off on all these emotional appeals intended to make everybody in the room either out of fear or guilt question whether they were believers or not. He was pretty good at it, too, to be honest with you. The associate pastor of the church got saved and baptized again. One of the most godly people I've ever met in my life. That's not the intention of the story. This is a, Jesus wants them to understand what's going on in the world. Why is it that there's evil that exists in the world? There's evil that exists in the world because there's an enemy who sowed evil seed all throughout the world. And it grows up and it matures. And as it matures, it gets more and more evil. So when you look around, don't be surprised by that. That's what's out there and that's why it's there. You want to know why the world is dark and why the world is evil and why there's murder and why there's mayhem and why there's liars and why politicians can't seem to figure anything out? It's because there's seeds of weeds all in the world, sown by an enemy who sows chaos. That's what Jesus wants them to understand. And he wants you to understand that, so that you have a proper expectation of what what you expect when you go out into the world. And so that you understand that everywhere you go, yes, there are weeds, and yes, there's darkness, and yes, there's evil, and yes, there's pain, and yes, there's going to be persecution, but you know what? Also, everywhere you go, there's going to be good seed, too. It's there, too. So the field is the world. And the idea is that we as believers have been planted in the world amongst evil people and enduring evil circumstances. And there's really two primary reasons for it. Number one is to perfect the saints. That is to perfect you. You and me living in an evil world where there are seeds of weeds all around us, growing around us, has a sanctifying effect on our lives. It teaches us some things that we need to know. It is part of Christ's his, his toolbox, if you will, to sanctify us into the image of Jesus. And he says that in places like First Peter chapter 5, verse 10, where he says, after you've suffered for a little while, and the idea is suffered at the hands of the evil around you, once that's happened for a little while, the Lord will make you perfect. The Lord uses this as a part of his perfecting in your life. And in James chapter 1, verse 2, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and that must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. 
So we live in a world where there's evil, and that evil impedes upon our lives, and it causes pain, and it causes grief, and it causes difficulty. And a lot of that is God using that as a part of His tool in our life to perfect us and make us more like Christ. The other reason that He allows us to exist in the world filled with evil people and sons of the evil one is, to, is because we have a responsibility to persuade sinners. When you and I walk through the world, we don't know who's who. Just like, the, just like in the story, the, the, the workers of the field, I mean, for all that time, they're walking through the field, uh, you know, cultivating the crop, and they have no clue what's what. That's you and me, going out in the world, doing our go thing, and getting outside of these walls and teaching the gospel to people who don't know it. We don't know who's good seed and who's not. Our job is to persuade sinners. And so we've been left here to do that. We've been left in an evil world to influence it. And so that's the point of that piece of the story. The the world is inhabited by both subjects of the kingdom and subjects of the enemy. We exist together. We breathe the same air. We eat the same food. We drive the same highways. We live in the same neighborhoods. We work at the same offices. We go to the same schools. We go to the same doctors. We enjoy the same kinds of entertainment, usually. We enjoy the same sun. And yes, sometimes we attend the same churches. That's what the previous parable was about. But that's not the end of the story. Because the harvest has meaning too. And Jesus says, the harvest symbolizes God's judgment at the end of the age. And he doesn't really elaborate on that. He just says the harvest is the close of the age and the reapers are the angels. He elaborates on it other places, like in Matthew sixteen twenty-seven, where he says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then they will repay each person according to what he's done. Or as Paul describes it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and away from the glory of his might. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, here's the message. Right now is not the time for the harvest. Right now is not the time to go through the field and, and, and pull up the wheat. But there's coming a time when that will be the case. When everything is done, when time has come to a conclu- close, when my patience has run out. At the end of the age, right before the end, there will be a harvest. But you won't have to do the harvesting. I've got special harvesters prepared. For that task. And they will go throughout the field and they will gather up all the weeds and they'll cast them in the fire. I don't know that there's a more horrifying sort of reality ever described by Jesus than that one right there. Yes, we live and work in a field of people where we don't know there's good seed and, and evil seed. We live and work and move and breathe with people, and we don't know the status of where they stand, which, which group they fall into, sons of the kingdom or sons of the evil one. But all those beautiful, talented, smart, accomplished people who don't know Jesus Christ, that is their destiny.
And unless you deny the truth of the Scriptures, that's the only conclusion to which you can come. Just as Satan is real, hell is real. And accountability for our lives is real. And God is good, and God is kind, and God is patient, and God has done everything He needs to do in order for us to be redeemed and forgiven. And yet, those who refuse at the end of the age will see another side of the character of God that they have not fully understood. That is the holiness of God that brings judgment on sin. And the judgment is serious. Throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't know if that image of gnashing of teeth is vivid to you, but it is to me. Have you ever seen sort of someone in grief that is so deep that they just grind their teeth together? Or someone who's in such deep pain? Maybe you've seen some old war movie where They have no anesthesia and they have to sew up somebody's blown off leg. And what do they do? They put a stick in his mouth. Why? To bite down on because the pain is such that it causes the teeth to grind. That's the image here. Hell is not a place to party it up with all the people that you partied it up with on earth. Hell is a place where there's eternal torment and eternal loneliness and eternal darkness where there is no shred of joy or happiness forever. That is the imagery here. And that is the destiny of those who don't belong to the Lord Jesus Christ at the end. It's a story that helps us understand the world. It's a story that helps us understand the nature of the church, who we are. And it's a story that helps us understand what it's going to happen at the end of time. It's meant to, I think, help us, like the disciples, understand why we experience what we experience in the world, for sure. But I think it's also intended to motivate us to get out into the field and to persuade sinners to turn to Christ. Because the alternative... Is horrid. I just summarize it by giving you a few points to ponder. These are pretty obvious and pretty simple, so I won't belabor them. I think they've already been made. But just to put it in practical terms, think of it this way. First, just don't be surprised at the evil in the world and that evil often goes unpunished. Don't be surprised at that. Don't be surprised that there's evil in the world around us. And don't be surprised that evil often thrives and goes, for now, unpunished. That's exactly what Jesus was communicating when he said, we're not pulling up the weeds now. There's a time for that, and the time is not now. But there will be a time for that. And you won't have to do it. I think there's a tendency for all of us to look around sometime and to see the evil in the world and to look up and say, God, why don't you just do something about all this? And God's answer is, I am going to do something about it. It's just not time yet. Psalm 73, you can write that down. That's a good read for you to to follow up on that particular point. It's the psalmist Asaph who looks around and asks that very same question. And God answers it for him. Second, don't be surprised at the tares and the wheat are often indistinguishable. 
Don't be surprised that the wheat and the tares are often indistinguishable. That's also a major point of the story, right? We live in a world full of saints and full of sinners. It's often difficult to tell the difference. For most of our, of our experience, they just sort of live and look the same. It's not until way down the road that it becomes evident who's who. And then finally, don't be surprised at the harvest. Don't be surprised at the harvest. It may happen in your lifetime. It may happen in my lifetime. Who knows? But it will happen. It will happen. Matthew twenty four thirty one, And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds. From one end of the heavens to the other. And in the meantime, you're either wheat or you're weeds. Just wheat or weeds. There's no third category. There's no... I'm thinking about it thing. You're just one or the other. And the difference between the two is really the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The difference is, there are people in this world who understand at their heart that they are wretched sinners. That they're created by a good God. And that they have, in many ways, in word and in thought and in deed, lived a life in rebellion against Him. Doing their own thing instead of doing what He's called them to do and designed them to do. And at various ways, at various levels, to various degrees, have rebelled against Him and said, and in general, I'm going to do what I want to do. I don't care what you think. And people who understand that the Bible says the wages of that kind of sin is eternal death. And people who've understood that they have no hope of rectifying that apart from trusting in Jesus Christ, the very Son of God who came and lived and died on a cross where He was crucified and shed His blood, taking their sin upon Him, enduring God's punishment for their sin in their place, paying the price on their behalf, that they might turn from living that way and embrace Him as their Lord and Savior, trusting in what He's done on the cross for them to be sufficient to save them. That's the difference between the weeds and the wheat. And it's in fact what we gather around the Lord's table this morning to celebrate those of us who know we're part of the wheat. Because we've had that experience in our life. We understand what it means that Jesus would die on a cross for us. That the one who was perfectly righteous, who had absolutely no obligation to do anything except destroy us and cast us into that furnace that he talked about. That he would be motivated by love for us. In such a way that he would come and live a perfect life and stretch out his arms on a cross and submit to that kind of a death that we deserved for us. And so it's fitting for us as we think about the way that we fit into the world to celebrate what Christ has done for us. To celebrate as believers that we don't have to fear the harvest at the end. 
Because the harvest for the wheat is to be gathered up and put into his barn to be with him forever. The opposite of a furnace. It's to endure the, the, the joy and pleasure of spending eternity with the Lord where all things are made right. And there is no shred of evil or darkness or pain or grief. All because Christ died for our sins in our place. And so, as we gather around the Lord's table here this morning and prepare to, um, to remember, if you're here this morning and you're the wheat, you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you repented of your sins and you've entrusted your life to Christ, then the call for you is, as we pray in just a moment, to reflect on that with gratitude in your heart and to say in, in your own way, Dear Christ, thank you for dying for me. Thank you that you gave me ears to hear and eyes to see. Thank you that I can know today that I'm part of the wheat sown by you. And I don't have to fear the future. And it's all because you've died in my place on a cross. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, right now is the moment to cry out to him. It's to turn from your sin and to embrace him as Lord and Savior. Ask him to forgive you. Ask Him to receive you as His child and a part of His kingdom. Tell Him you want to give your life to Him from this day forward. And He will not refuse you. He's promised such. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we come to the end of this study this morning. That is both encouraging, it's both helpful... And it's also a bit frightful, depending on how we understand ourselves in the world around us. But as your children, Lord, we come today with gratitude in our hearts that we don't have to fear a furnace, a flame. That we don't have to fear eternal darkness. That we don't have to fear our sins being held against us another day that we don't have to fear eternal judgment and accountability for our sins because we know that you've died in our place that you've already endured the punishment for our sin in your very own body on the cross that you have shed your blood that our blood might not be shed. That your body was ravaged that ours might not be. That you, the perfect one, paid the perfect price that we could never, ever pay. And beyond all of that, you've extended to us your grace that's so undeserved. And you'd offered out your salvation as a free gift to any who will receive it by repenting and trusting themselves to you. As those who have done so, Lord, we, it's our joy to remember what you've done for us. We live in a world that's busy and our lives get muddled. Even our, our Christian lives get muddled and we forget the cross and we forget what you've done. We get busy with the work and we forget the heart of it all. We are who we are in the world around us and we are who we are for eternity because you the perfect Son of God, died for us. 
So as we gather around this table, we celebrate that. We remember that. And we pray that as we do that, Lord, you would draw us into yourself. Fresh and anew, that we would see you clearly this morning. And these quiet moments, Lord, prepare our hearts that we might not approach this table with any known sin in our lives. For to do so is to desecrate the ordinance. It's to dishonor you. And we would never want to do that. So forgive us, Lord, of our sin. Forgive us for how we fall short of your glory. Cleanse our hearts, cleanse our thoughts, cleanse our attitudes, cleanse our minds as we approach this table. May this celebration of your death on our behalf be a means by which you encourage us You remind us of the things that matter the most and drive us close to you. And for anyone who's here this morning who doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, may it be a living, vivid, pictorial testimony of what you've done on behalf of all who receive you. And may they be drawn to you today in saving faith. We pray all of these things. In your holy name, Lord Jesus. Amen. The Bible tells us that uh, Jesus and his disciples.